the Giants began the season 0-2, while the Saints were 0-3. Both have only lost once since. This Sunday, they go head-to-head at the Superdome. Touchdown! Coverage begins at noon Eastern on ESPN Radio. You cannot lose games in the NFL and still win. One day I understand. One day, go see the baby be born and come back. You're a Major League Baseball player. Did I not tell you? Yes, you did. Oh, see, don't answer. I mean, this, these are rhetorical questions because you know I told you and you know I'm Analytics bad. don't work at all. It's just a crap to some people who were really smart made up to try to get in the game because they had no talent. This kid is a gamer. He's a follower. He's a playmaker. And a shot caller. In case you didn't know, I got T-Bow. He shattered the mold. And all he does is win. All, all, all he does is win. Hello and welcome. This is Hot Takedown, 538's podcast about the week in sports narratives. I am not Chadwick Matlin. Our usual host, Chad Matlin, is on vacation this week. I'm Neil Payne, a sports writer for 538. I'm filling in for him during his travels in India. Uh, and with me, as always, is Kate Fagan, columnist at ESPNW. How are you doing, Kate? Hi, Neil. Uh, and we have a special guest this week from Slate, Mike Pesca. He's the host of The Gist and a panelist on their sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen. Thanks so much for being here, Mike. Sure. And I am not Neil Payne. We should all say who we're not. That's right. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Not, that, that's I'm the I'm in new your format. seat, right? Pretty much. Kate, that's right. Or is Kate in your seat? I am in my seat. No, Kate's so I'm always not, sitting okay. where. Yeah, she is. So, so you I'm are in your me. Seat. Yeah. I am Chad. And Chad. And, and we are all together. That's right. Cuckoo, cuckoo. That's right. Exactly. Um, so, Kate, you've been a fill-in on Mike's show, Hang Up and Listen. Uh, so we've kind of have Mike returning the favor this time. Uh, and and uh, maybe a nerdier uh, environment to be <laughs> in the midst of? A couple things. One, that's called Podola, when uh, there's pay- Paola via the podcast. <laughs> and the second thing is, if you know Hang Up and Listen, any version of nerdier than i'll take if nerdier than hang up and listen i will take that yes thank you do you know that the episode i was on i think was the most downloaded of theirs in the history of their podcast ever wow i have no idea if that's true or not but that's what i tell people i think i think it's uh correlation not causation (laughs) well that's that's the narrative i don't know if the underlying stats bear that out (laughs) we're gonna take down that narrative perhaps uh so we're this week uh speaking of sports narratives and and the show being hot takedown we usually take down a hot take from the world of sports media but this week we're kind of putting the training wheels back on we're not going to play any hot takes uh we wouldn't want to do that in the absence of our fearless leader chad anyway uh but here's what we've got planned for the show today first of all we are going to take a look at our new carmelo nba rankings and player projections and and season preview and we're going to talk about the upcoming 2015 2016 nba season uh, thank, thank goodness that it's finally here. It's been a long few months without basketball. Uh, then we're going to talk a little about uh, the fact that only 10 out of the 32 NFL teams have a winning record right now. And uh, is that weird? Is that something that we would expect? And talk about maybe why the wins are so bunched up. Uh, then we're going to talk about a new National Women's Hockey League and what we can learn from the fates of other startup sports leagues and you know what what kind of things that that might portell for this uh, sports league. And then uh, we'll end with Allison McCann, as always, with her significant digit of the week. Uh, and Allison, you're actually here right now. We don't have to wait for you to Allison, come in. Allison, you're here right now. You have been sitting here the whole time. And we've been talking about you awkwardly. Um, welcome to the I show. I am me, and I am here at the beginning and the end. It is magic. But who are you not? You're not disembodied, I'm Allison. not doing this. No, I'm yes. just Allison. She's still I'm, in her seat. So she, the only we're anchored one. where we usually are. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, you guys are in the same spots. It's the rest of us that are confused. Um, and Allison, you're here because you are uh, one of the world's foremost experts on Carmelo, uh, the NBA projection system. Is that right? Uh, absolutely, yes. Uh, you, you toiled for, for what seemed like months, many months, right? Uh, the Programming it and making it look nice and, and getting it up on the site and functional. Uh, yes, I worked more on the visualization side of Carmelo, um, but closely, very closely with the data, um, less on the modeling. That's that's all Nate and Neil. Right. That was Nate Silver, our editor-in-chief, uh, helped develop this metric. Uh, I also pitched in a little bit. Um, uh, can you tell us, first of all, what is Carmelo? Uh, and and uh, preferably starting with what the acronym is. Uh, I don't know if you're furiously looking it up on the computer right now as we speak or if you came prepared. Um, I am prepared. I'm sad that our Carmelo hot take is not Carmelo himself saying, come on, you're counting me out already. Someone should have just read that. Uh, one of the ESPN beat writers sort of interviewed Carmelo post our Carmelo launch and was like, actually, 538 says you're going to be pretty bad in the next five years. <laughs> and uh, his response was, come on, you're counting me out already. But um, yes, Carmelo is our new uh, NBA projection system. It is the career arc regression model with local optimization uh, that Neil and Nate <laughs> backronymed, as they call it. Um, but yeah, the basic premise of it is pretty simple. For each current NBA player, Carmelo identifies similar players throughout NBA history um, and uses their careers to forecast the current player's future. It is less kind to some players uh, than others, hence Carmelo's dissatisfaction with his projection. But um, yeah, it was inspired by uh, Nate's Pakoda system that he made for baseball, and he had been wanting to do something similar uh, for the NBA for a while now, I think. And so this is our, our first go at it. I think Neil can explain why um, it's a bit more simplistic than uh, Pakoda. Yeah, so Pakoda, um, in the fine tradition of things being named after perhaps not obscure players in the case of Carmelo Anthony, I, uh, maybe we should have rethought that and gone with a, a more backup-minded NBA player. But uh, yeah, it, uh, I think Pakoda, when Nate developed it, it was uh, something that looked at all of the facets of a player's game and like spat out stolen bases projected and doubles and things like that, whereas this just projects basically how good the player will be on offense and how good they'll be on defense and how many minutes they'll play uh, based on how their similar historical players uh, performed and then gives you sort of an estimate of value uh, about how, how all that translates to wins and losses for a team. So I'm, I'm excited by it. I went through it. And my take is, hot or not, my take is that it's it's a neat trick, but it's nowhere near as good as Pakoda for the reasons that you can't compare basketball in all the ways you always talk about to baseball. You know, baseball, especially the offensive, not pitching, is pretty independent of everything that's going around it. I mean, we've even done a lot of studies on, oh, protection in the lineup, that doesn't mean that much. Park effect, sure, but that gets priced in. So in basketball, here are the things that you're missing. You're missing the effect of teammates, right? So Keith Van Horn with kid versus Keith Van Horn without kid, or give me a sense of what um, the mailman's career would have been like without uh, Stockton. That's gigantic. And then injuries. Now you could say, well, doesn't don't injuries play a role in baseball also? And I would say this. In pitching, yeah, I would say pitching injuries and basketball injuries are kind of similar. But it seems to me that in baseball, injuries are more... Mm, a diminishment, a um, gr more gradual 
And whereas in basketball, they kind of take away entire aspects of your game. So at one point in his career, Larry Johnson can jump from eight feet from the basket, grab the rebound, and, you know, put it back off the rim all in one fluid motion. And then all of a sudden he can't, and he'll never have that again. Whereas in baseball, I just don't think it's the case because of diminution of skills. A guy just can no longer hit a breaking ball. Because guess what? If you have that kind of hole in your game in baseball, you're out of the game. So I think it's uh, it's going to be a lot more difficult to definitively say that this person will be like this other person but it could be really useful for the young players or one or two years in the league especially it would be great i think in future years when you have the pitch fx stuff and you can compare not just uh height and weight with pitchers if you have that version uh with the stuff in the nba with the sport vu Sport VU. If you plug sports sport VU into this, that could get really interesting well, results. Neil, I kind of want to know what you think because I know you all usually try and incorporate pieces of data or or ways to combat the whole difference between baseball and basketball and the effect of teammates versus sort of the one on one data of baseball. Like, what do you think about the model and? What are, I guess, what are the, the pitfalls you foresee and maybe the ways it's, it's stronger than we think? Yeah, well, I think uh, a lot of what you said, Mike, is completely true, uh, especially the historical aspect. Um, Allison and I were talking about this earlier today, actually, about this idea that not only like the baseball historical record is so rich mm-hmm. that you can kind of compare apples to apples from players, you know, almost 100 years ago and really get that set of comp- comparable players. And that is what drives the projection system, whereas the game of basketball has changed so much in such a short, comparatively short amount of time that you're sort of grasping at the you know similarity between players in a game that may bear very little resemblance to what they're playing right now. Certainly, I think that is a pitfall um, that you know all of this has to really take into account. And then there's also again the t- the teammate factor, like you both mentioned, that really we're doing our best. And Nate and I sort of went back and forth a lot about which metrics to even throw into this, and you know eventually we're uh, we, we started out looking at all of the advanced stats that we could get our hands on, and they were some of these like summary metrics of you know player efficiency rating and uh, plus minus for the years that it exists. And uh, that's another problem with the historical versus current is not all of these stats exist for all of the years that we want them to exist. And it goes even beyond the the metrics to something like you know steals and blocks. Those were not recorded before I believe the mid to late seventies in the NBA. Um, right. And turnovers were an ABA thing uh, from the beginning of their league in 1968, I want to say, but the NBA didn't adopt turnovers until 1975. So when you start getting into that, and, and there's a reason we put the cutoff at the merger of the ABA and the NBA to try to get that rich data set, but then you've cut down on potential whole universe of players that you know we can't say who is the modern Bill Russell. We, we can't say that. And that takes away the entertainment value also, I think, of being able to sort of envision you know Ben Wallace... Uh, if, if we're running a projection in 2005 as Bill Russell circa That's exactly. I was thinking of Ben Wallace. Did you do projections from guys 10, 15 years ago to see if Ben Wallace would have been Rodman, Oakley, Russell, or what the hell he became? <laughs> and that's an, yeah, that's another great thing where uh, given sort of the resource restraints that we 
had, we really only did it for current players, and we sort of uh, assumed, and some of it is baked in, right, because you're looking at the arcs of the players, and, and they're, the past players played out according to a certain arc by definition, because we know what they did with their career, uh, but it would be very fascinating, perhaps a future iteration of the tool, Allison is uh, probably not looking forward to programming that in, of being able to say, like, you know, Charles Oakley, circa 1996, you know, what were his comparables and did he live up to his yeah. player career arc? That's something very fascinating that you can do in baseball with Pakoda. And even at Baseball Reference, they have a, a feature where you can sort of call up the most similar players and then you can find out just how disappointing Barry Zito was after because uh, not a coincidence, I was looking this up uh, with his retirement a couple days ago after he signed with the Giants. So, yeah, there's a lot of things that perhaps you can add in the future to a system like this. Um, but I do think it also you know, it works, it works pretty well. It, it certainly looks shiny and fancy and I think the underlying logic of just trying to find like player types and that not every single player of uh, you know tall players, small players, certain different positions, p- people who use athleticism, they're not all going to progress the same way. Right. And you have to have some way to differentiate that and figure out players of this archetype tended to age better than other ones. Yeah, I'll add that you know speaking to the thing about injuries like as you can see in the projections, the the forecast range is pretty wide. Like we added those confidence intervals sort of around these points to show how much uncertainty is, you know, in this state. I think uh, John Wall is our example player and we show him, you know, his projection spans from 4.7 wins above replacement to 12.9. And that's a huge jump. And, you know, so 80% of his you know, projections could have fall within that range. And so um, things, I think we said, like players coming off injury, like Paul George had wider confidence intervals. So we tried to account for this uncertainty, like you said. I think injury is a big thing. I also think this scheme that um, an individual coach does, baseball doesn't have that. Every coach is going to tell every player pretty much to do the same thing, every manager. You know, what uh, Steph Curry is a much different player than he was two years ago because of the spacing that the uh, Warriors are given. Uh, also, think of a guy like Vince Carter. At, at 25, his projection would have been one thing, you know, like 85% of Jordan or something like that. At 29, it would be, oh, this guy's a disappointment. At 34, it's like, oh, maybe looking back on his career. So at different points, it would have uh, said different things that would be interesting. Right, and, and every guy, like like you mentioned Vince Carter, like the evolution of his game was nothing that you could have predicted Well, it was a weird well. evolution. It was a punctuated equilibrium. That's what Stephen Jay Gould talks <laughs> about, whereas he's a new species. So, to, go ahead, Well, go ahead. he has a style of play that at one point you would project out very differently, and then as he gets older, he develops like – jumpers and yes. certain things that Weird, weirdly you know Jordan did it maybe he was so good he could do anything some players do that some players can't how the hell can you get a, a, a bead on if a player can become an outside player after being an inside player for so long yeah that's and that's hard. something especially with Carter because of the injuries it was something where he had been so dependent on his athleticism early in his career he had to almost come to like this fork in the road decide do I want to continue trying to be a diminished version of that player or develop some of the other skills and I don't know if there's something that that can predict that that's more of a mental thing than anything else and like kind of a player's desire to sort of adapt to his uh, his surroundings and his new circumstances. So let me let me just say I tried to help you out and there are a couple things that are wrong with this system or could be better. So I We're th- welcome to hear it. We, yeah, I'm going to throw I'm going to throw a couple of them out there. One is I think it would be really good. I'm not you know what? Let me take that back and say they're not things that are wrong, but based on the glory that is Carmelo, I have a couple <laughs> other ideas for you. I always find it hard to project the foreign player. There seems to be even more question mark about him. So I'd like you to come up with um, a system that I'm calling the uh, Determined Exponent Statistic and Game Analysis.
analysis, noting acculturation data inferred other player, and that would be the De Sagana Diop. <laughs> um, or this would be interesting. This is taking into account, like I was talking about, scheme or how much a player improves or injury. The basketball-oriented rating, independent scheme determination, injury, and whatnot, and that would be the Boris Diop. So I if like you could these. come up with the Boris Diop score. And the last thing is, every everyone wants to uh, compare everyone to Jordan. So then you could come up with a data-inferred, non-oracular rating analysis driven Jordan approximator or the Dino Raja. Those are my ideas. <laughs> I mean, Dino Raja probably scores very highly on the, on the uh, Dino Jordan Raja ap- approximator. <laughs> yeah. No no player I think of. At one point I, in his career yeah. it did, yeah. Um, yeah, so, just give us like um, probably like a week and a half. We'll just whip that. Right yeah, up. I mean, it's just a slight tweak to the algorithm, I think. Uh, we can do those very easily. Yeah. So. As a casual NBA fan, for me, like, and building this whole thing, it was like sort of just like kind of funny to see that's like it is at its most simplistic thing just like an age curve and like everybody <laughs> is getting bad besides the rookies so i almost wanted just like the rookie version of carmelo to me it was like the most fun to like see these interesting peaks and dips with you know young players so i don't know as we keep going with this and we're going to keep writing stories off of it to me i'm like excited most excited by the rookie players i'm like the rest of these dudes are just getting old like yeah but the greatest thing is it logically and necessarily engages in cro- cross racial and cross cultural comparison so you don't have the thing where every good white shooter is compared to Larry Bird. Thank God. Right. And then anything that can get us past those, I think it's, <laughs> uh, it's truly only data that can that can get us to that. Carmelo will deliver us. That's right. Uh, so one of the other components of this was not only can we use this to project out the rest of players' careers, but we can also use it to try to aggregate uh, the players on any given team this season and talk about how good that team is supposed to be according to their Carmelo projections. And that's something that we've done at 538. We've rolled out uh, over the past few weeks a number of previews that are are sort of based on that. And most of them have sort of been what you would expect. Uh, The Knicks do not fare uh, incredibly well, according to the projections, uh, as you mentioned, Allison. Uh, And and Carmelo himself has now been made aware of. That's very helpful uh, to set (laughs) expectations for for the Knicks fans. Um, But then some teams have been a little bit surprising. uh, And uh, one of the teams that I like to think about are the Boston Celtics, uh, who were a team that really has been trying to make this transition out of the Big Three era, very successful, but they depended on um, very old core, jettisoned them a few years ago. Now they've been sort of trying to rebuild. Uh, And our projections, thanks to Marcus Smart, who Carmelo really loves, and there are certain players, you spend enough time with Carmelo, you will find that there are players that Carmelo just loves, especially young players. Maybe they haven't uh, gotten to this disappointment part in their career uh, like Allison was talking about, uh, where where it's just all downhill. But like Alfred Payton on Orlando is another player that uh, Carmelo is in love with. And uh, right now, it, it, we have the Boston Celtics winning 48 games, I believe, which would be a huge improvement over that. Are you guys buying that, or, or, or are we a little too bullish on the Celtics, do you think? Well, I mean, I've always, not always, but the last year, and I know when we talked about it at the end of the NBA season last year, looked at the Celtics in a way as having a similar model to what the Hawks were doing in terms of the way they were building their roster and we certainly saw the Hawks um, take quite an uptick over the last year or two. So the Celtics kind of are in that model, that same model of like not relying on the superstar way that we had you know, thought, oh, okay, this is how NBA teams have to build, but going about it a very different way in that in the Hawks' vein. So I feel like believing that they can be right in that seven or eight seed again is the absolute perfect sweet spot for them right now. But this might not be the seventh or eighth seed. Um, this Depending on the Eastern Conference. 48 wins in the Eastern Conference could be top three. I don't know at this point. 
I don't know what uh, I don't know what Brad Stevens read our back score is. What would what would the coach version of that be? Well, what's the uh, what's the backronym? Yeah, <laughs> for oh. our back ratings. I don't know. Um, yeah, but that's I see. I think he's the most important guy in the Celtics organization. That's why I have faith in him. And it brings up something about Carmelo. Will a guy who's been with Popovich his whole career? How much will the Popovichism be baked into his Carmelo? Or you take a guy, Boris Dio, for instance, who no one thinks is good, and then he goes and plays for a smart guy like Stevens or Popovich. I'm going to put at this point Popovich a little higher in the uh, in the uh, rankings in the NBA. But yes, I think the, the look. We could at least say the Celtics are on an upswing. And their coach is the best coach to have. And they have a core of players that uh, not only are they good and it's not based on the star system, there's not anyone sucking all their payroll up. That's also important. Yeah, especially yeah for a team that uh, is trying to rebuild. You know, that's the residue of that is having a lot of these yeah. guys with the cap flexibility. Uh, and you mentioned the Hawks, Kate. Uh, that was one of the other ones that we've been sort of catching some grief about on Twitter. Uh, but in the opposite direction, because the Hawks won 60 games last year and uh, Carmelo is not as bullish on them as... As, as perhaps many people would think. I think it called for them to win 47 games. So a huh. big drop hmm. off uh, in, in performance. And I was trying to sort of wrap my mind around it. Uh, full disclosure, I used to work for the Hawks as a consultant. So uh, I might not be the most uh, impartial person on this, but I can also see where uh, the ratings are, or where Carmelo is kind of coming to this conclusion. Because if you look at the, uh, the charts, they are perhaps a prime example of this phenomenon of, you know, of seeing a player's comparables just drop off like they're uh, they, they are projected to have had their best season last year and a lot of guys on that roster had career years Kyle Korver kind of headlining it but uh, but many of the guys are nearing their 30s they're they're beyond 30 and uh, they also you know I was really digging into it when you start talking about Pythagorean wins and trying to say oh well you know they they had we're a little lucky in close games and things like that um, but you could uh, I, that team probably seems like it might be due for a little regression but isn't Carmen Carmelo, doesn't this show that Carmelo is too player dependent? Because the reason those guys had career years was because of scheme, was mm-hmm. because of spacing. There's not, it wasn't just randomly that these guys are going to be performing in the 90th percentile. There's a reason that Corver had so many open shots. So to me, it's like one of those pitchers on the Rays team from eight years ago. They were playing in front of an aggressively shifting shift, Joe Madden. Yeah. So when you have a coaching genius, it will, I think, throw the curve off a little bit. Well, can Carmelo tell us how the Hawks, how it would have predicted the Hawks last season if we do? think it's too scheme based and not like individual player oriented yeah unfortunately uh carmelo is uh, limited yeah well we can't go back and plug in carmelo can't go left it's not that carmelo can't dribble to his left (laughs) exactly um uh, but there was uh during the season because the hawks had had such great you know unexpected performance and i had been writing about it i did go back and use uh there's a system that is even dumber than carmelo uh or or it's pakoda cousin in baseball called marcel the uh, named after the monkey from friends that people use in baseball ball and it really just takes the past few years and regresses them to the mean and the Hawks uh, projected to be like a 46 win team so in essence uh, they played like 14 wins above what they were supposed to last year and Carmelo sort of independently but not really independently is saying they should give that back but there's some evidence that coaching effects like you had mentioned Mike uh, especially with Mike Budenholzer being a disciple of Popovich maybe you could throw that all out the window because Popovich continually overperforms the uh, Marcel the monkey. We'll see if he pre- uh, performs Carmelo as well. Listen, if you could devise a system that's a little dumber than Carmelo and you could somehow backronym it to be Derek Coleman, then you win. <laughs> you win. The Syracuse <laughs> connection there. <laughs>
Allison, thanks for being here and explaining Carmelo to us. Uh, we're going to have you back in a few minutes to do our significant digit. Uh, thanks, uh, and, and come back soon. <laughs> thanks for having me. Uh, so we did not get a chance to talk about the Western Conference, uh, but we, we had thoughts on the Spurs uh, and the Thunder and the rest of the West, uh, and we'll touch on that in a later episode. Uh, but right now we wanted to move on and talk about the NFL, uh, where at the top of the show I mentioned that we have uh, a handful of undefeated teams, and they stayed undefeated this past week. Uh, all but one of them did. The Atlanta Falcons lost uh, to New Orleans. But we noticed that only 10 of the 32 teams in the NFL have winning records right now. And and it's not like a bunch of teams also have 500 records because there's only four that have 500 records. And that seems sort of strange. So we wanted to do some digging around and see if this just is, you know, makes a comment about the state of parity in the NFL right now. Uh, and so I came armed with some numbers uh, where I looked at uh, the distribution of records. And uh, the thing that occurred to me when I was first looking at this was it seems like there's a few teams at the top, the elite teams of the league, are gobbling up all of the wins. Uh, and it seems almost like an income inequality situation where where there's there's a winning inequality, uh, a bunch of teams that have poor records and a handful at the top who are really hogging all of the wins. And there's a way in economics to sort of measure this called the Gini coefficient, G-I-N-I. Uh, and I ran that on the wins of teams through six weeks uh, to see if this is part of just an outrageous trend in the NFL. But I found that 2015 ranks 12th uh, during the 16-game schedule era, which goes back to 1978. So it's a pretty skewed distribution of wins, but not uh, the all-time high that I perhaps was expecting it to be. But is this something that you guys have noticed, too? Is this standing out to you at this point in the season that it just seems like some teams uh, are really rolling over the rest of the league, and, and uh, there are other teams that just don't have as much of a chance? It, it's not standing, it wasn't standing out to me until we started like researching and, and writing about this now and talking about that it. That tends to happen sometimes yeah. um right but i it kind of feels like you know if we've got if we believe that the quarterbacks are the key and we always talk about that we're like well if you don't have a good quarterback then you're going to fail in the nfl well then it, it's it would stand to be true that then the teams with more elite level quarterbacks would be winning and parity wouldn't be parity would not exist in the nfl the way we sort of like mythologize it and maybe that's a hollywood thing but it's also certainly part of the marketing plan for the nfl that basically every team every year every week has a shot uh so i enjoy the fact that you're the bernie sanders of win inequality <laughs> millionaires and billionaires that you're occupy park Ave. now are these the nfl standings L let me just make a couple points because i think the big thing here is and we all know about small sample size so a week in the nfl is not the equivalent of 10 baseball games it could never be of course you try baseball is ongoing and when we talk about all these teams that don't have winning records you know you got the giants but for ridiculous time management play they're four and two so we could do this with every teams but as, as you go down and you think about the teams that have just eked out a win you know you have minnesota which certain well actually minnesota is three and two we we could tick off a bunch of teams that are at or near 500 that wouldn't be but for one play. And when you're talking about a small sample size, one play is the difference between a 500 team and a winning team. Because the thing about a six weeks and, and six games is it still is only six. And you change one outcome and you flip a team from winning to losing. So last year, after about six games, here were the standings in the Eastern Conference. 
Toronto, Miami was five and two. Wizards were five and two. Bulls were five and two. Celtics were three and three. And then the the Hawks were two and three. Oh, there's a, a under five hundred team. The Pacers were one and six. That turned out to be true. In the West, you had the Grizzlies, the Rockets, the Warriors were five and one. But at five hundred, you had the Spurs at two and three. The uh, the Nuggets, well, they weren't very good, but they were okay. But after six games, we, the season does not wind up looking like it does at the end of the year. And so I think 16 games, 82 games, we're going to see. Yeah, Talk but, to me when there are 16 games played is what I'm saying. But also those teams are playing knowing there are 82-game seasons. And they have been in a sport with that large sample size the whole time. Whereas NFL has always kind of operated on the same set schedule. And these guys knowing, whether it's through high school or college, like the difference in impact of one game. Yeah, but I don't think that that changes the... I mean, the only way that that would change, especially six games into the NBA season, is rushing a guy back from injury. Something like that. I believe the players are playing absolutely as hard as they can every night. Maybe with a day or two to prepare in the NBA versus a week to prepare in the NFL. Every eventuality isn't drilled for. This is why I didn't compare it to baseball. Baseball, of course, you have different pitchers. But I think an NBA game is played at the utmost, at the hardest level, and there's no reason to think that because it's 82 games, teams aren't giving their all. Well, I think that's a very interesting comparison uh, to make because we ran a story a couple weeks ago by Noah Davis and Mike Lopez, uh, two of our uh, sports stats writers, where they compared uh, the four major sports and they looked at how often the home team won each game and and not only did they look at the actual outcomes but they looked at the Vegas lines so how often was the home team favored to win which uh, we would assume would be kind of a very good uh, a proxy for how talented and what the spread of talent is if if you have the home team sometimes being favored to win 90% of the time uh, that's probably a sign that there's some imbalance going on in the league if that happens uh, more than every blue moon and the same at the opposite end of the spectrum uh, and what they found was you could sort of group the four major sports into two subcategories. There was baseball and hockey in which there were very few games that strayed away from being almost a perfectly 50-50 proposition. You would never see a team in the NHL or in Major League Baseball be favored to win even perhaps 80-85% of the time. Uh, and, and some of that goes to starting pitching. Perhaps there aren't enough ace on uh, anti-ace matchups where you just know who is going to win. But even even as we've seen in the playoffs, Jake Arrieta of the Cubs has, you know, he looked like a world beater throughout the second half of the season. And in his past two starts in the playoffs has sort of looked very average uh, against some teams that uh, you would not have expected to put up those numbers. So you can group hockey and, and baseball together. And uh, you guys seem to have intuited this, but you can also group basketball and football. And I found this very fascinating that essentially the two sports are almost totally equal in terms of the distribution of how often certain teams are favored to win uh, versus other ones. And you're going to see in the NBA sometimes teams favored to win like 95% of the time. Yeah. You can go into a game and know with 90 to 95% certainty who will win in that game. And the same goes true for football. The only difference between the two sports, they came to the conclusion at least, is that one plays 16 games, one plays 82 games. But I also think that the NHL, I, I mean, in a, you get truer 
outcomes in the NFL and the NBA. In the NBA, just because there's so much scoring, and in the NFL, well, it's because there's a lot of scoring, but it's a 60-minute game and less is left to the vagaries of chance or the hot goalie. Anytime you have a game like uh, soccer or hockey where it's only one or two goals, you know, the coin flip will determine, and Major League Baseball is so pitching dependent. If there was some way to do this analysis where one pitcher, you know, Clayton Kershaw could pitch every game, you'd get it much truer that, you know, they'd be the favorite almost every game at home. But it is, I mean, it, that makes perfect sense, but it's also kind of odd considering how many times we've talked on the podcast about how the NFL doesn't have players who are affecting the outcome of the game at the rate that other leagues do and certainly at the rate that NBA stars do like if if we're going to try and make the equation the um, comparison between the two leagues as the NBA has stars who can affect outcome and the NFL we think has quarterbacks who can affect outcome but the stats don't bear that out. Right. Uh, and maybe it's almost like the uh, the opposite version of that, the inversion of it where uh, the NFL is all about depth and, you know, how many good players you can put out there, but it also exposes holes. So if you have a few players who have no business being on the field, it can tank as much as having LeBron James can help you uh, if you're an NBA team. Yeah. Uh, one player can help you there. Maybe one or two bad players can really sort of destroy what otherwise would be a good team in the NFL because I feel like we see a lot of NFL teams. The, the good ones have a, a system, first of all. I mean, you know, they draft well. They have a good coaching, and it sort of all builds on each other. So it's tough to say how much of it is gaining the players and how much of it is just training them right. But at the same time, we do see that depth seems to win in the NFL and having someone – because injuries are going to happen. You need to, someone to be able to plug in, and, and it's more of a, a – less of a star-based system and more of a overall talent. But the idea of quarterbacks – and I heard your show last week where you're trying to get at the good ratings of the quarterbacks obviously they can only you know more than half the game they're literally not on the field they have no control over more you maybe want to argue that Aaron Rodgers is so good he takes pressure off his defense or puts pressure on the other offense that seems an ethereal argument to me right so you factor in special teams the most the guy can have a control of is 40 percent of the game compared to you know LeBron James being one of five players on the court and his usage being somewhere in in the 30s and and then of course you have 10 players around him so but still, I do think that if you look at the teams that are great, they all have the great quarterbacks still. And if you look at the teams that are disappointing and under 500, it's no shock to me that the Colts, you know, should be the fourth best team. You factor in the, all the luck injuries. Guess what? They're three and three. The Saints, usually a good team. You factor in the Breeze injuries. They're below 500. Let's look at the teams that have had significant. Okay, Pittsburgh's four and two. That's surprising. But let's factor in the teams with significant injuries to their quarterbacks and maybe there are some of the teams who are not doing well. That said, I'm totally wrong. Peyton Manning's been terrible and Denver's still 6-0. and <laughs> And also, we got the retroactive thing where we're like, oh yeah, Andy Dalton, he's a good quarterback. Or Cam Newton. Yeah, you know, well, is Andy is Dalton a good year. quarterback? Because is that why they're 6-0? and Or are we saying he's a good quarterback? Hey, the team's 6-0. and Andy Dalton must be a good quarterback. Right, and that's a little of what we talked about when talking about in stat school, uh, the wins and losses to judge a quarterback. It's very circular as to whether we consider someone a great quarterback because they win or does a team win because they have a great quarterback? Uh, and the so, weird thing is Matt Ryan is no better this year than he was last year, but their defense was atrocious last year. Now they're good. Now they're 5-1. and one. But I still think, Kate and I both think, that, you know, talk to me after 16 games and then maybe we'll think it's more significant. So you guys want to check in at 16 games. Uh, we'll have you back. We'll, we'll hold you to that and we'll talk about it after the season is over. Well, um, let me record two drops and you just cut to me then. Okay, here's one. See, I told you. And, well, 16 games is still pretty small sample size. Perfect. Did All right, you guys one of those two guys. in the studio? <laughs> um, so that's where we're going to leave it. 
leave it right now. Uh, and I'm sure we will revisit this topic in, in all seriousness because it is interesting. Uh, in the NFL, it's just so, you know, it can be so random and so weird. And that's why we love it. That's, you know, what keeps us coming back every single week, uh, or at least is a big part of it. Right now, we're going to move on to a startup league, a new league. It's not often that we get to talk about uh, an entire new league forming. And in this case, it's uh, a women's hockey league, the National Women's Hockey League, in fact, the NWHL. Uh, it just started its first season, and it has four teams. And uh, we were hoping to kind of ask questions and learn lessons about what it takes to start a new league in this country and in today's sports environment. So, Kate, I wanted to start with you. Uh, what do you find interesting uh, about the NWHL? Well, I'll start with a story because I went to the New York Riveters home opener on Sunday night, right? And um, it's miles and miles away from the last subway stop in Brooklyn. I couldn't find the access road to the parking lot behind the hockey arena. It took three passes to find it. And I have Google Maps, okay? Also... The Boston Pride, the team the Riveters were playing, was still en route to the arena an hour after puck drop. was supposed to happen. Okay, so... Maybe they don't have Google Maps. (laughs) I was thinking this is going to be a disaster, okay? You can't get to this arena. You can't find the road once you get to the general area. The team is not there yet. There's going to be nobody here. So I finally found the arena, and I walk in. The place is jamming. The place is packed. It was supposed to start at 7. I got there around 7.50 because I know some people on the Boston team and they were texting saying, don't come at 7 because we're not going to be there until 8. So I wasn't fashionably late. I was still early. Um, and But the place was jamming. And I'm like, all right, so something is going on here where there's a market. There are folks within the New York fan base. And, and we know that there's a huge population that loves hockey, um, Long Island, Brooklyn, all, all and, and, and Manhattan proper. So this league found a sweet spot in terms of a fan base, at least in New York, and I know Buffalo, Boston, um, that people want to see this product, right? But now you've got issues like you've got four teams. How talented is each of the rosters? Because what ended up happening was that Boston won 7-1. to one. It's not going to be a good scene if a quarter of your games are against a team that you are just going to be destroying by scores of 7-1 to one and 10-1. to one. And this was not an anomaly because the Boston team has all the Olympians for various reasons. Well, how did that come about? One of my questions was going to be, did they have a draft? How did they determine? Uh... Yeah, they're trying to have drafts, but at the same time, if the... A lot of the Olympians live in Boston because the only previous team that existed was the Boston Blades as part of the Canadian Women's Hockey League. And so they have their setups there. They have their trainers there. They have their life there. So, so many of the of the top, top players who play for the Olympics are like, look, if we're going to play in this new league, we're going to play in Boston. Anyway, the roundabout idea here is that I actually think more so than any other upstart league right now, there are passionate fans who want to back this league. But you got to figure out how to fine-tune it. You've got expense issues, so you can't get teams there the night before, so you're going to run into later rivals, right? How do you avoid some of these things? How do you avoid the fact that you would need the absolute best women's hockey players in the world, but but the Canadians have their own league? And are you going to get players from Russia? Are you going to get players from Sweden? So then you've got a product where... It's a solid product, but it's not the best in the world. And we all know for women to succeed, they got to be twice as good, not half as good. Well, where is the Brooklyn Arena? It's 
Um, it's it's the Aviator Complex. It's um in Marine Park. Like yeah, right it's in Marine Park. So it's like if you don't live in this area, folks, this is not accessible by subway because the uh, people there really don't want didn't want the subway to be influencing their uh, local neighborhood. And it's right before if you could picture a map of New York, there's Long Island, and then there is an um a barrier island that comes below Long Island. Those are the Rockaways, so it's the stop right before the right. It's Rockaways, basically really like in the ocean. Almost. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, so I would say this. First of all, why do why do pro sports have to start on time? Pro concerts don't start on time. We all know <laughs> that, right? So I think we're holding it to a different standard. And actually, that is my point. I think that if we look at leagues and the WNBA and the pro soccer league, we always compare it to the men's team or at least successful leagues. And it's a bad comparison. It's a bad comparison for a couple reasons. Uh, I've done a lot of reporting on the WNBA and up to a few years ago, you know, the Chicago Sky would point to me, hey, look at the Chicago Bulls attendance in their first few years. And it wasn't that different from the Chicago Sky. But the thing is, men's sports have become uh, the concept of it is not just successful, is not just ongoing enterprise. They become culturally dominant. So it's sort of an analogy would be tech, where if now I say you're a tech startup, the things this conjures are billion dollar valuation, unicorn. It's going to change the earth. It's going to change the way we think and do. But, you know, in 1980, tech startup mean, meant, you know, maybe you were making a Tandy computer in your backyard. In a garage. Yeah. yeah. If I said, oh, I ran a tech startup, you know, 30 years ago, you'd be like, that's nice. Maybe you could get a job as a mid-level guy in Waste Management Corp or with US Steel. It just didn't mean the same thing. So I think we need to start thinking of women's leagues as not at all comparative to US leagues. Let's compare it to the music scene where, yeah, there are bands that could sell out Madison Square Garden, but there are also bands or venues, because I think it's more about the venues, that are like Irving Plaza or that are like, here I am naming all these New York venues. But you know that venue in your hometown that fits 800 and is an ongoing concern and it's certainly uh, remunerative for everyone involved, and that's what women's leagues and this women's leagues should strive for. And uh, it's also worth saying that you know it takes time to to build a, f- a support base for these. And we've talked on the show before about how often is it the the third season is the critical season for mm-hmm. every women's soccer league ever. Practically, uh, to, if they can make it through that third season, then it seems to have much higher probability of surviving beyond that, well beyond that. Um, and this uh, the WNBA. I have some numbers on that um, that our uh, intern Sarah Patterson put together for us that uh, the WNBA didn't start to turn a profit until about 2011 uh, three teams were profitable in 2013 six teams were profitable but now uh, the salary structure of the WNBA is such that the minimum salary for three-year veterans is fifty thousand dollars and if you've played six years it's uh, it's six digits uh, so compare that to uh, the NWHL where the team salary cap is $270,000 for the whole team and the minimum uh, for a player is $10,000 it, it does you know it takes time to, to build a following and to actually get the money to, to make this happen right right, right now the- right now the NWHL's Car- uh, Carmelo score is the MISL <laughs> but they're hoping to get it up to the, the WNBA right that'd be good yeah. but we, we can't ignore certain fundamental issues here like and i and i love the comparisons of like i do enjoy comparisons about like well look you know in the 70s where was ucla men's basketball or where were certain leagues but two things one if this league and certain games are going to draw fans based on having other you know kids tournaments in the area you kind of got to start on time right because (laughs) 
You got to get these kids home. We got schedules to it's keep not, here. In that way, it can't be like a music venue or a concert where like you're not you're not keeping you're not keeping track of that specific issue. And another thing here, like, is that you mentioned the salaries for the NW. Um, HL and the fundamental issue there is like if the majority of players are making ten thousand dollars, how are you ever going to have players want to come play for New York, where you cannot live in the city for ten thousand dollars? Oh, they have to be. I mean, they're part-time uh, players. They have to have extra right. jobs right. on the side. Right. So, so it's like, but so you've got you've got certain like lopsided issues here, right? And as somebody who thinks this league is actually coming at a really, really good time in terms of popularity but then there are these fundamental issues of like okay you can't afford to get a team there the night before so things are gonna routinely probably start late i mean you know traffic in these major cities is going to be an issue every time you're trying to travel at like 4 p.m to get there for a seven o'clock game then you start running into like are some of these tweaks going to break the league the fact that you can't make these tweaks is going to break the league before they can really get their feet under them. And that's why it seems like competitive balance. Uh, I think you mentioned earlier that you can only have a certain number of, uh, of Olympians, uh, was it, or Team USA members. Maybe that's true they, in the soccer league, right, where um, uh, you can only have two, I think, per team. Uh, and that is just a pure effort to try to keep things competitively balanced so you don't have those seven-to-one scores. Well, that's what they do overseas in women's basketball, right? Like in the Chinese league, they're like, you can only have one non-Asian player or right. two non-Asian players. And the NWSL is trying to distribute Olympians, but then you run into issues where it's like, well, you know, it just so happens that certain Olympians train in the Pacific Northwest. So playing for the Seattle and the Portland team, and certainly a Portland team that's drawing 16,000 fans a game, you're going to put you're going to put pressure. You know, if you're a star to be you're going to lean on people to be like, look, I want to play for that team. And then all of a sudden you're stuck with um, a Rochester team or a Buffalo team that doesn't have the same talent level. And maybe in the men's sports, uh, it seemed like in the early stages of their development, you had, you know, some team, the NHL at one point was a six team league for many, many years. And uh, teams were allowed to fail and uh, the league itself had backing still. So you didn't have to worry. It was almost self-correcting not to sound like a, a market capitalist uh, ideologue but that some uh, you know teams could be allowed to fail and maybe the best place it's almost self-perpetuating that Seattle would have a really good women's soccer team if that's where people are really excited and that's where the best players live and then it develops a culture there but I think in some of these others uh, in in the women's sports that it is difficult to sort of just say okay we're going to let things shake out and if a team fails it fails because one team failing could bring the whole league down with it at, at such a kind of fragile point in its development well i i really i don't know we you were talking about kate about you know we have to find a way to pay these women some money so that they could actually you know get out of at least get out of their job early um consistently to make it to the game are on they time. actual riveters by the way or is that some <laughs> of them Do they i don't think the logo they... is that public is that fair use the by the way? i guess Rosie? so and it's, yeah. it's not like i think they need to pay more money because i'm very sensitive to the fact that the mba's paying model is what's keeping it from folding I mean, if the yeah. if the WNBA, you know, heeded to like demands that they pay these women more, like compared it would to fold. Europe and Russia, yeah, and, and the NBA. I mean, the bottom the bottom line with the WNBA is the fact that it's kept its pay scale so low is the only reason it's still afloat. But there are certain issues just with this hockey league that if you've got your flagship location in New York and yet you don't have like at least this is this sounds so um, elementary, but like. 
families who are going to house house some of these players to like cut down on their costs. Like they, they don't have that yet. Maybe they need certain solutions that just sound like, oh my god, are we really at that place with women's sports that can have their flagship New York franchise actually recruit some talent so they're not getting beat seven to one. Uh, so we're going to move on from there. And Allison McCann, as promised, has returned. Uh, she is back for the significant digit. That is our telling stat that catches her eye each week. Allison, what do you have as our sig dig? So this week's significant digit is maybe an, an, an ode to Chad. Uh, come In back. his absence, In yes. his absence, we will. He's always on the mind. Um, and it is five, and that is for Daniel Murphy's five postseason home runs, uh, which maybe doesn't seem all that incredible when you hear that Mike Piazza has also hit five postseason home runs. Uh, but I think the interesting part is to hear that it took him 22 postseason games over two years, uh, and Murphy has done this in seven games. Uh, I'll let the rest of the Mets fans here <laughs> roll with roll with this week's digit. And which pitchers has he hit him against? Right. Yeah. A murderer's row. You know, Arietta Kershaw, and Greinke, one, two, three in ERA in all of baseball. And so that was five of the first seven pitchers the Mets faced. Now, as we tape, they got some guy named Kyle Hendricks. Is this a person? Yeah, I, I, when exist? I first heard of him, I thought it was Kyle Kendrick, who uh, was the longtime Phillies uh, pitcher. But uh, he is a separate person, uh-huh. and, he's, and he's a better pitcher than, than Kyle Kendrick, <laughs> Kyle Hendricks is. But, uh, yeah, and uh, the Mets, I mean, we would be remiss, I think, uh, without taking advantage of this, because Mike, you're a Mets fan. Kate, you're a Mets fan. Um, and Chad, our, our beloved leader who is in India, uh, he, put, he posted, uh, I believe it was an Instagram, but it was one of those Instagram like videos of himself listening to the radio as they recorded the final out of the NLCS in, in Game 5 against the Dodgers and like sitting on so, in some kind of hotel I guess, a hostel in, in India and clinging to like a blanket and the look on his face was so hopeful but also uh, very, you know, filled with trepidation. So that really summed up what it was like to be a Mets fan. I feel like and on this incredible run that they're going through, Murphy has, has sort of symbolized everything about that team. Yep, great play in the field, running the bases. Now, we can't say, you know, Oh, it's so hard to be a Mets fan compared to the team they're playing against. Yeah. Yeah. But I do think that I've gotten more joy. I think I have always said that I've perfected sports fandom and I only take pleasure out of it and I never really uh, get too angsty or down. But I've gotten more joy out of this. And I think I've come to the conclusion that baseball, more than any other sport, benefits by having an investment in the outcome rather than just an interest in the outcome. I mean, I'll watch the Super Bowl. We all will. I'll be fascinated by it. I won't really care who wins. But your team, having your team in it and since most of my friends are yankee fans they wouldn't know this but it just ups (laughs) the level of the game more than any other sport is upped just because of the i think nature of the slow pace of baseball the fact that most of the boring things in baseball if you're invested in it actually become exciting things like a pitcher throwing back to a base or whatever or daniel murphy you know seeing the birth of his son and getting quoted in the opening credits of the show (laughs) intro of course i mean I, i claim Mets fandom but really it's just secondhand through my dad who i have witnessed over the last What's it been? Seven, two thousand six. Last time Mets made the playoffs. That's right. Two thousand six. I mean, he's well, watched two thousand seven. No, they, they blew it late. late. No, yeah, Beltran watched strike right, three. Right, two thousand seven was Glavin yeah. against the Marlins. That's right. Glavin tried to put it in perspective, and everyone's like, "There is no perspective. We're New perspective York sports Perspective doesn't fans. exist." I was at that game, and I did a report for NPR, and my last quote was some guy outside the stadium saying, "Sometimes you just feel stupid for caring." <laughs> That's so profound and so sad. But uh, Kate, you no, were talking about the, your father. Uh, as you mentioned, the level of 
commitment to watching that team, watching every single game over the last eight years. I mean, it, it far outweighs watching the Giants every week. Right. You know, just the level of time commitment that you put into this sport. So, I, secondhand wise, like when my dad calls or texts, like the last couple of weeks, like the amount of like enjoyment he takes from this is probably tenfold what yeah. what he gets from the Giants, who he also adores. And I, you know, I never thought of that. So when the Giants, the Jets, whatever, they get eliminated, you know, you deal with it for four weeks. When, the, when your team, you know the Mets are eliminated like two weeks after the All-Star game. That right. is 70 games you got to slog through it at the end. Uh, and that, yeah, it does speak a lot about the nature of baseball. And it, sometimes it doesn't even feel like a time commitment. Like I have had the game on in the background pretty much every day. Uh, and, and I'm not really paying that much attention to it during the regular season, I should say. Uh, but it's just there and it becomes part of your life. And I think that speaks a lot to it. But also, you know, we'd, uh, we would also be remiss if we didn't talk about how the postseason is just like a, a strange time where everything takes on so much more importance and Daniel Murphy is a great example of this because during the regular season uh, since we've all gone through stat school we know about the stat OPS plus he had a 113 uh, OPS plus which means he was better than average but he was no uh, you know Babe Ruth or anything like that but he is on an incredible tear uh, and I think for Mets fans you have to look at it and take that and just be like we're happy to get whatever we can but if you're a team that loses to that it do, it must be incredibly frustrating to see this guy who uh, possibly just had the hot streak of his life but it just happened to take place during October in these important games and and it and it really slays your team yeah it was it's home runs in four consecutive games right mm-hmm. yeah that's tying the record but the thing is the Mets sorry we're being so Mets centric we, ha- we have to also. this might be our are last you, are you longest sorry? sync dig we've ever done yeah I, I, because it's about the Mets. The Mets, you can't say, oh, they just got lucky by this one bat who came relatively out of nowhere because their success is how they built the team, which is these awesome starting pitchers. Uh, that's going to do it for our show uh, this week. We'd like to thank Allison for bringing that sig dig to us um, and, and talking Carmelo with us. Thanks for having me, and you are welcome, Chad. <laughs> and uh, Kate, as always, uh, thanks for making the track uh, in your busy schedule to talk to us. Thanks, Chad. Oh, wow. You guys really are calling me Chad. It, it's complete. Uh, let's go Mets tonight. My, and, mine was a you're welcome for the for the sig dig, but also I guess we can all call Neil yeah. Chad. Chad. He's sitting uh, in that seat. I'm sitting in the seat. And uh, thanks to Mike for coming in. Uh, it, it really meant a lot to have you on the show this week. You got it, Chad. And if you ever see Neil, tell him he's got some work to do with that Carmelo. <laughs> okay, so that's going to do it uh, for the show this week. Uh, our, we have some more credits to reel off. Our podcast producer is Jody Avergan. Our video producer is Ryan Nantel. Uh, we've received production assistance from Jordan Shulkin and Lois St. Jacques. Our intern is Sarah Patterson. You can email us at podcasts at 538.com. Spell out the whole word, 538. Uh, we'd love to hear what you think. Uh, you can find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Downcast, or all sorts of other apps. We're also on iTunes. You can subscribe at iTunes.com slash 538. So be sure to review and rate the show, and it helps others discover the program. Our theme song is by Mystery Mansion. I'm Neil Payne. Uh, Chad will be back next week, and we'll talk to you then.
Giants began the season 0-2, while the Saints were 0-3. Both have only lost once since. This Sunday, they go head-to-head at the Superdome. Touchdown! Coverage begins at noon Eastern on ESPN Radio.